A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. From Stephen Orell's Media, this is Hither Came Conan, the podcast with an axe in one hand, a sword in the other, and one big old smile on its face. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and it must be Friday because it's about to get all kinds of Hyborian up in here. <laughs> that was terrible. This week we're talking about Conan the Barbarian number 21, which, I mean, we probably should, considering that last week we talked about issue 20. Okay, yeah, I know that every once in a while we ignore these old Conan comics and we talk instead about the latest Titan issue, but that's not going to be until next week. Actually, that's not true. Uh, word just came down from the people up top that Conan the Barbarian number six from Titan Comics and Heroic Signatures has been pushed back a week. So it won't be released until December the 27th. I, uh, you know, as I normally do, I was giving this episode one last listen from the toilet before putting it out there for the public, and I figured I should clear that up. Anyway, sorry about all that. Uh, I'll let you get back to the episode. So, yeah, that's why we're continuing on with issue 21 of the original Marvel run. This issue sports a cover date of December 1972, but it hit the stands in September. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled The Monster of the Monoliths. Roy Thomas is credited as the writer-slash-editor. Breakdowns were by Barry Windsor-Smith, Artie Simic was the letterer, and Dan Adkins, Craig Russell, Val Mayeric, and Sal Buscema were the inkers. Or, as the issue lists them, Embellishers all! Into the boat! Previously in Conan the Barbarian. Conan, Balthaz, and a small force of Turanians sneak into the city of Makalit to steal back the living Tareem. During their mission, they are all separated, and only Conan and Balthaz make it out alive. After making his way back to Prince Yezdegerd's ship, Conan discovers that Balthaz, who returned first, had Conan's BFF Fafnir who had been wounded in a previous issue, thrown overboard to drown. In his anger, Conan kills Balthaz and then slashes Prince Yezdegerd across the face with the scimitar before diving from the ship and swimming to freedom while the prince's men fire arrows into the sea, hoping to hit their mark. As this issue opens, Conan, with an arrow in his back, crawls out of the sea and onto the steps of Makalit's main wharf, where he is met by workmen who are busy erecting barricades against the coming Turanian attack. Seeing Conan and knowing him to be an outlander mercenary working with the Turanians, the workmen attack. And while the barbarian fights back, he's pretty weak and he's wounded and he is sorely outnumbered. And soon he passes out under the beating of the workmen who make ready to kill the Sumerian. It's only when the commander of the king's guard intervenes that Conan survives the encounter. The Sumerian is taken prisoner, patched up, and thrown into a cell. Throw him to the floor. What's it? Throw him to the floor. Oh. In the meantime, as Conan stews in his cage, Queen Melisandre is having breakfast with Karamakad, during which she asks in regard to the barbarian's welfare. Later, after the court physician visits with Conan in his cell, just to see how the arrow wound is coming along, a guard named Kurusan takes the barbarian for an audience with the king. On their way through the palace, Kurusan and Conan are forced to pause when a procession passes by. 
a procession of soldiers, and the living Tareem. Conan, hoping to catch even a glimpse of the Tareem's face, is denied the opportunity by Khorasan, who forces the Sumerian to move on. The queen, in the meantime, sitting with the king and Karamakad, leans toward the high priest and in a whisper thanks him for not informing the king, her husband, about her roaming the palace the night before. Karamakad graciously accepts the offer of thanks and then comments upon her lovely new gown when Conan is brought in. The king, Enatum, questions Conan, wanting to know how it came to pass that a mercenary on the Turanian payroll turns up on the main wharf with a Turanian arrow in his back. Inconceivable! Conan simply explains that he killed a Turanian soldier, one who was highly favored by the prince, and so he figured it would be in his best interest to leave their employ. Finding Conan's tale amusing, the king makes him an offer. Help Makalit, and the Sumerian will be rewarded. Conan agrees, but only if his reward is his freedom and a fast horse which he can ride as far away from this holy war as possible. Their bargain made, Conan is given his instructions. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. He, Khorasan, and two other soldiers are to leave the city, make their way around the Turanian forces, and ride to the city of the queen's father to request aid in their war with Turin. Before they set out, however, the queen pulls Conan aside to give him a gift a rune-covered armlet that she says will keep him safe. Conan, who has traded in his little fur trunks for a Hyrcanian skirt and helmet, accepts the gift, keeping silent, and makes no mention that before he knew her as the queen, he knew her as the temple wench, Keisha. It's then that he and the others ride off on their mission. Meanwhile, in the Turanian war camp, Prince Yezdegerd, the scar from Conan's attack on his face, makes clear his intentions to hunt the Sumerian down, and in a bit of foreshadowing for a future issue, states that soon the land will fall under the shadow of the vulture. As the prince plots, Conan, Khorasan, and the two other soldiers manage to skirt the Turanian war party without being discovered, only to stumble into a pair of Turanian scouts who attack the Conan crew, shooting at them with flaming arrows. While Khorasan and the other two Hyrcanian soldiers duck and cover, Conan charges the Turanian bowman, on foot, with nothing but his sword. And because he's Conan, he kills them both. Then, mocking his companions for cowering on the ground, calling them brave warriors, Conan announces that it's safe to come out. Khorasan thanks the barbarian for taking out the scouts, declaring that nothing now stands in their way. Conan, however, tells the Hyrcanian to shut it. While he killed the two men because it was his duty, he found no joy in the act because he had known both of the Turanian scouts from his time serving in the Turanian army and announces that either one of them alone was worth a regiment of Hyrcanian soldiers. Oh. <laughs> that was brought to you by the letter S as in snap. Fifteen days later, as the Conan crew rides up a steep hill, the barbarian points out that the road around the hill seemed to be the smarter choice. Khorasan then reveals that they're taking a short detour by command of the queen and that certain rites are to be performed if they are to guarantee a Makalit victory, and that there's only one place in the whole wide world where these rites can be performed, and that place is right up ahead. He then points up the hill as their destination comes into view, the Black Monoliths of Zuthultan. Two immense black stone towers stretch up before them. Next to the Blackstone monoliths is a small shack, and standing out front is an old blind hermit that Khorasan calls Justin. Someone that the Hyrcanian expected would be there when they arrived. But there is someone with the old hermit, a young, attractive blonde woman, and while Khorasan finds her presence a surprise, he doesn't seem to mind and calls out to blind Justin to make ready with the sacrificial braziers so that 
by the time the moon is in the right place, they will make their prayers to the god with no name. The blind hermit is upset by the news and begins to argue with Kurasan as Conan rides in for a closer look at the stone monoliths. Drawing closer, the barbarian can see runes etched across the black stone surfaces, runes that, to Conan, seem strangely familiar. Before he can bend his mind to it, however, he's distracted by the words the old blind hermit shouts at Kurasan, quoting some long-lost religious texts. They say foul things of olden times still lurk in dark, forgotten corners of the world, and gates still gape to loose on certain nights, shapes pent in hell. Conan is, of course, concerned over these words and asks the old man for a little bit of clarification, who only tells Conan that the Sumerian should ride away, far and fast. Blind Justin then tells the young woman, who turns out to be his daughter, that they too should leave and that they should go to the nearby village and tell all who dwell there what is about to transpire at the stone monoliths, for surely they will send some people out to put a stop to it. Kurasan, however, has a different task for old Justin. He takes hold of the hermit, and as the two Hyrcanian soldiers draw their scimitars, placing the points of each blade at Conan's throat, Kurasan draws his own scimitar and cuts old Justin down, killing him. Justin's daughter screams and runs to the old man, who has collapsed lifeless onto the ground, when one of the two soldiers hammers the pommel of his scimitar into the back of Conan's head. And for the barbarian, the world goes black. When Conan wakes, it's nighttime. The star-filled sky looms down upon him, and he quickly discovers that he is stretched out and tied down to a large stone slab. Next to him on a second stone slab is the old man's daughter. She, too, is tied down. Conan struggles against his bonds as he and Kurasan trade harsh words when the Hyrcanian unexpectedly murders his own men, <laughs> stating that, per his orders, there are to be no witnesses this night. Then, calling out to the taloned lords who yet lurk in nameless gulfs, Kurasan leans over blind Justin's daughter and kills her as well. From this blood sacrifice, a large toad-like creature manifests atop one of the monoliths, freezing Conan in terror. Get on with it! Yes! Get on with it! However, as the creature begins to move to crawl down the side of the monolith in a very creepy way, Conan explodes into life, snapping the bonds at his wrists. With his arms now free but his legs still bound, Conan snatches Kurasan's sword away from him with one hand, while the other, making a fist, pops the Hyrcanian a fresh one in the jaw. That really hurt. The creature looms ever closer as Conan cuts his legs free and makes a run for it, thinking that the creature will go for Kurasan first, considering that the Hyrcanian is closest to the monstrosity. The giant toad thing ignores Kurasan, however, and makes for Conan, who, hoping to end things quickly, throws the scimitar at the creature and watches as the blade strikes true. <laughs> hitting the thing right between the eyes, the blade sinking into the monstrous flesh all the way to the hilt. But to Conan's surprise, it does no good at all. The creature is unfazed, and it continues its relentless trek toward the barbarian. Trying to decide what to do next, flee or stand his ground, Conan catches a glimpse of something shiny on his arm, the rune-covered armlet that the queen had given him before he left. Staring at the armlet, he suddenly realizes that the runes upon the band are the very same that cover the Blackstone monoliths. Realizing now what he must do, Conan removes the armlet and tosses it to Kurasan, who instinctively catches it. Kurasan stares dumbly at the armlet in his hands, realizing too late the mistake he's made as the creature is on him at once. The toad thing kills Kurasan, and with the Hyrcanian's blood dripping from its grotesque lips, it turns as a cloud of black smoke forms between the monoliths. Conan, thinking that the toad thing is about to come for him, 
tenses, ready to die fighting. But as the thing leaps, the barbarian watches in surprise as it jumps into the cloud of black smoke and disappears, leaving the barbarian alone, the only one left alive. And so, as the issue ends, Conan rides away, vowing to do that which he had promised to do, which was finish the task given to him. He will carry the message, the request for aid to the city of the Queen's father. Then, with that commitment completed, he will journey back into the newer Iborian lands. All right, so the story in this issue is very loosely based on the Robert E. Howard short story, The Black Stone, which is another one of those Howard stories used by Roy to craft a Conan tale that doesn't actually have Conan in it. Oh, hi, Conan. How are you? The Black Stone is a horror tale set in the present, or the present as of the 1930s. And it was apparently written by Howard as part of the Thulu mythos, which, of course, originated with Howard's contemporary, H.P. Lovecraft. And in case you're curious, it was first published in the November 1931 issue of Weird Tales. Now, I didn't read The Blackstone because, like I said, there's no Conan in it. Set in the universe of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian. So I can't really compare the original with this issue, but I can tell you that the section of the issue where the Conan crew come upon the twin Blackstone monoliths That's the bit that is based on the Blackstone. I can also tell you that the old blind hermit, Justin, well, his name was more than likely taken from the protagonist of the Blackstone, the mad poet, Justin Jeffrey. Also, here's something that that might be interesting. As I was looking into this issue and reading up a bit on the Blackstone, I was suddenly reminded of the first four issues of the Titan run of Conan the Barbarian, you know, bound in Blackstone. Well, I couldn't help but wonder if Jim Zub took a bit of inspiration from either the Blackstone or the Monster of the Monoliths because all three stories feature some sort of structure made from Blackstone that causes evil stuff to happen. So I reached out to Mr. Zub because. You know, he and I are like complete strangers, but I asked him simply, so, hey, I'm hoping you might have a moment to answer a question for me. I'm putting together my notes for the next episode of Hither Came Conan, in which I'm talking about Conan the Barbarian number 21 from Marvel 1972. The title of the issue is Monster of the Monoliths, and it didn't even dawn on me until I was looking into the Robert E. Howard story that it's very loosely based on, The Blackstone, but I started thinking that the Blackstone monolith in the Robert E. Howard story and the two Blackstone monoliths in Roy Thomas's Conan felt very much like the spire of Blackstone in your first Titan arc, Bound in Blackstone. Coincidence? Or was Bound in Blackstone inspired by either the Blackstone or the monster of the monoliths? Mr. Zub, who is a prince, responded that yes, he was very much indeed inspired by the Blackstone. And in fact, to quote the man, the Blackstone story is absolutely inspiration. The Blackstone inspiration is key to a major story event we're unleashing in 2024, using a lot of different Robert E. Howard stories to broaden our mythology. And then he pointed me toward his newsletter, the Zubby newsletter, specifically Zubby newsletter number 35, A Brutal Battle Looms, from November 21st. And I'll link to it in the show notes. You can read it on his site, jimzub.com, but I'm going to link to the Substack because if you're not a subscriber and you are enjoying his Conan, then you need to subscribe. Anyway, the Zubby newsletter number 35 talks a bit about a Conan event storyline that he has coming up called Battle of the Blackstone, which would be the major story event he mentioned in his response to my question and obviously involves the Blackstone. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here talking about all that only because next week we should be talking about Conan the Barbarian number six from Jim Zub and Titan. So yeah, since this Battle of the Blackstone event is a Titan thing and not a Marvel thing, it makes more sense for me to talk about it next week. In the meantime, if you want to click on the link in the show notes and you can go read about it. But 
Otherwise, I'll be talking about it next week. Yeah, again, that's not correct. It won't be next week. It will be the week after next. Back to your episode. But yeah, thanks, Jim. Beyond that, there really isn't much more to say regarding the behind the scenes type stuff in this issue. I mean, other than, all right, I lied. There's actually a bit more. First, while I will talk about the cover when I get to my favorite bits, there's a blurb on the cover that reads, Winner of the Comic Book Industry's own Academy Award for Best Comic Mag. Which is true. But what's fun about this blurb is that the award has a name, which is a Shazam, just like the Academy Awards for movies are called an Oscar. So first, let's get into a little background on the award and the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which gave out the award. And for full disclosure, while I'm not reading this information to you verbatim from Wikipedia, I did get it from Wikipedia. And frankly, I might as well be reading it verbatim because I really didn't change much. That is definitely not true. I don't know. I looked it up on the Wikipedia. Anyway, the Academy of Comic Book Arts was founded in 1970. Stan Lee was the first president and Dick Giordano was the first vice president. One of the things that the ACBA did was to give out these awards annually. That was between 1970 and 1975, and they were for outstanding achievement in the comic book field in a variety of categories. The award was called the Shazam, and in 1971, the title Conan the Barbarian won the Shazam Award for Best Continuing Feature. Roy also won Best Writer, Dramatic Division, that very same year. But in his 2018 book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Roy claims that he's the one who gave the award the name Shazam, which is, of course, the magic word Billy Batson uses to become Captain Marvel, or as he's known these days, Shazam. Well, Roy thought that Shazam would be a great name for the award. Here, I'll tell you what, it it actually might be better if I just read to you from this bit here in the book. I chose the name because A, the original Fawcett Captain Marvel Adventures was the best-selling comic in the world for several years in the 1940s and was still known by the adult public, as was the magic word Shazam. B, two popular TV stars of the 1960s, with names like Ed Cookie Burns and Gomer Pyle, if you can believe it, had kept Shazam alive by making it an exclamation of their own. And C, most importantly, I figured that the original Captain Marvel was, of all the comic book superheroes in the world, the least likely ever to return. Then just a year later in 1972, Carmine Infantino, who was the publisher of DC Comics at the time, announced in one of the ACBA meetings that DC now had the rights to the Shazam Captain Marvel and had plans to publish comics starring the character. Not only that, but because by this time, Marvel had a character by the name of Captain Marvel, DC couldn't use the name in the title of a comic, so they were going to call their new book Shazam. 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 All right, so why is this so funny and what does it have to do with Conan? Well, think about this for a moment. When a movie wins the Oscar for best movie, you can bet that the DVD cover would have something on it stating something like 2023 Oscar winner for best movie, right? Well, the problem here with this Conan issue is that while it did, in fact, win a Shazam for best continuing feature, they were not about to put the name of an upcoming DC book on the cover of a Marvel book. So instead we get winner of the comic book industry's own Academy Award for best comic mag, which I don't know. I just find that very funny. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? I don't know. I don't know if that's what irony is. Ulrich, have you no idea what irony is? Yeah. It's like Goldie and Bronzy, only it's made of iron. <laughs> anyway, one last thing before we get to my favorite bits. This issue doesn't look very good. I mean, that's my opinion, sure. But it seems that most everyone who worked on the issue shares that opinion. I'll take an example from Roy Thomas himself, which, 
again, comes out of that damn book I'm always talking about. It's in the chapter where he's talking about this Conan issue we're, we're talking about. And it's after the bit where he tells the story regarding the blurb from the cover, or as he calls it, the copy. So he says, I knew even as I wrote that cover copy that Conan the Barbarian would never have won any best comic award based on the story, penciling, inking, or coloring of number 21. Only Artie Simic's lettering was up to its usual high standard. There's even a bit on the Hyborian page, which is the letters page from issue 21, in a text box from the editor, which I guess would be Roy, that hints at the trouble they had putting this issue together. It says, The hardest task around Marvel these days seems to be to get a Conan issue penciled and inked in time to meet our ever-maddening deadlines. It goes on to explain that Barry, in an effort to gain a head start on the next issue, did rough sketches for the issue, also called breakdowns or even layouts. And this was done for most of the pages in the issue. And a couple of guys who were new pencilers at the time, Val Mayeric and Craig Russell, who actually worked with the inker Dan Adkins as part of his studio in Ohio. Well, those two guys finished the art while Adkins and Sal Buscema inked it. But based on what I could find online, mainly from the site Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books, which has a lot of great information, by the way, the link will be in the show notes. But most of the folks who worked on this issue, from Roy and Barry to Dan, Val, and Greg, they just weren't all that proud of the way the issue turned out. Over the years, the blame has been thrown all around from Val and Craig being new to the biz to Barry, who was also fairly new, not truly understanding how to do the type of breakdowns needed for another artist to then come in and finish the art properly. But beyond the art looking the way it did, which honestly, the the style and quality practically changes from panel to panel, the consensus from all involved is that the colors were just as terrible and did little to save the look of the issue. Now, of course, there's no colorist credited in the issue because Marvel or maybe just comics in general didn't do that back then. But Roy, in his book, claims that the colorist on this issue was George Rousseau's. While Roy and some of the others were critical of the work Rousseau's did on the book, specifically all the oranges and purples and blues and yellows, that he used during the night scene with the toad thing. Roy also points out the many panels that with the exception of the main figure, everything else is pretty much one color. Roy refers to those as knockout panels, and just glancing back through the issue, one panel in particular really jumps out at me. It's page 21, the last panel, Conan, the toad thing, the monolith, and even one of the fallen soldiers are all fully colored. But the grass, the steps, the slabs of concrete, they are all the same shade of blue, which I don't know, I guess could just represent the fact that it's dark outside. But I I don't know. I don't hate it. I'm a big fan of big chunks of solid color. And so I didn't find a lot of fault in the coloring of the book, but others apparently did. Roy, I should point out, while he poo-poos the coloring job. Never ignore a poo-poo. He does state that George, like the rest of them, probably had to do a rush job, and that's why they turned out the way they did. Morale totally destroyed by poo-poo. With all of that said, when you go back to the reason why Barry decided to do breakdowns on most of the issue and not full pencils, which was so that he could get a jump on the next issue, well, I guess they weren't aware at the time that things would pile up even more. Because the next issue, issue 22, which was supposed to be as the final panel tells us, the shadow of the vulture instead turned out to be a reprint of issue number one. But I'll tell you what, we'll talk about that when next we move forward with the Marvel run. I swear that if Conan will let me ride with him, I will give my life for him. One last thing before we get to the next segment, Roy, in his book, in this chapter, dealing with this issue, he makes this offhand remark about how at one point, Before this issue, when Conan wasn't selling well, 
there was talk of including Thor in an issue in an effort to boost sales. And while I can't seem to find much about it out there on the internet, it does sound like it might have been Roy's idea that he figured Thor was popular. And of any of the Marvel superheroes at the time, he would fit best in a Conan issue. And that it had been this desperate moment that the title you know, may have been facing cancellation and, and Roy was just coming up with all sorts of ideas to possibly try and boost sales. And then in the end, they didn't need to. People found the book and the sales went up all on their own. I just found that interesting. And while I haven't read What If, number 39 from March of 1983, What If Thor of Asgard had met Conan the Barbarian, I can't help but wonder if there's anything in that issue that was meant to be an impossible Conan issue in which they would have put Thor to boost sales. Of course, what if issue number 39 was not written by Roy? But still, I am very curious. Does anybody know? Do you have some insight? Let me know, Stephen or else at gmail.com. For now, though, I thought it would be fun to start adding in a new segment to the show, a segment that won't really be all that long, and it's one I'm calling the Hyborian page in brief. So I mentioned it earlier, but the Hyborian page is the name of the letters column in the back of these issues. And as I was scanning through the letters from issue 21, I found that, well, first they're all feedback regarding issue number 17, which, if you recall, was the gods of Balsagath and was the first of the two Gil Kane issues. And therefore, there was a bit of a theme throughout the letters. The editor's text box at the top of the page sums it up nicely. As the most myopic fortune teller could have predicted, the substitution of Gil Kane, or any artist for that matter, for Barry Smith on Conan, was bound to bring in a deluge of letters, pro and con. So yeah, while I'm not just going to read through all of the letters, here are a few highlights. Dan Mullaney from New York wrote, When I heard that Barry was leaving the strip, I hoped Gil Kane would be the replacement because of the raw savagery he can portray. It might be argued that Gil's circular type anatomy and astonished look faces don't fit Conan, but he produced a masterpiece in storytelling, layouts, and visual excitement. James Edward Smith, however, had a different outlook saying, I've got to say that I am truly disappointed. Gil did hold his own as an artist, but he just didn't capture the real Conan that we're all used to. Gil is good at drawing superheroes and such like, but Conan is not his thing. Barry captures the Conan I read out in the paperbacks. Scott Olson from Minnesota said, Gil did the best art he's ever done. He draws Conan's muscles the way Frazetta did on the cover of Conan of Sumeria. Duffy Volland from Indiana chimes in with, It's been over a month now and I still can't stop raving about how beautiful the art on Conan number 17 was. On the other hand, Gary Openhouse had this to say, Let me make one thing perfectly clear. Never, never let Gil Kane pencil Conan again. His style just isn't barbaric enough. David Randolph III commented, when I heard the ill-fated announcement that Gil Kane would be taking over the helm of Conan's art, I nearly cried. Everyone knows Gil Kane does the excellent Warlock and many of Marvel's most dynamic covers, but it never seemed to me that Kane was Conan material. I was proven wrong? I said that last sentence as a question because there's a question mark at the end of it. Not sure if that's a typo or not. But a Canadian who wrote in under the handle One Angry Customer provided their thoughts as well. In my opinion, if Barry Smith doesn't draw Conan, you might as well cancel the mag. Gil Kane, Neil Adams, even Jack Kirby couldn't do Conan properly. Barry Smith's style was perfect for Conan, and he did justice to Robert E. Howard's stories. It was almost as if they had worked together on the comic. Gary Robinson from Ohio leans in the other direction. Barry Smith is all right, but he is not my cup of tea. Gil Kane and Ralph Reese in issue number 17 were fantastic. And finally, Danny G. Daniels from Panama City, Florida, had this to say. Conan number 17 was beautiful. Praise to Roy and Gil. 
although I did miss Barry. So there you have it, folks, the Cliff Notes version of the Hyborian page in Conan the Barbarian number 21 from September of 1972. What did you think? Whose opinions do you agree with regarding the Gil Kane-Barry Smith debate? And would you like me to do more of these? Let me know, Stephen or else at gmail.com. And so, as I wait in breathless anticipation for your email, how about we move on to Stephen's Stephen's favorite favorite bits. Okay, so once again, we will start with the cover. And I did tease last week that this might be my most favorite cover of the series so far. And that opinion has not changed. Now, I know that I've mentioned many times over many episodes that this cover art within a frame thing that they were doing over at Marvel at the time, which started with issue 11 in August of 1971, well, I don't like it. And what's funny is that in his book, Roy mentions this cover template thing for the first time, and he seems to be in agreement with me. Barry's dramatic pinup was to fit into Marvel's oddly unartistic cover layout of the time, with a framing, same color areas at the top, behind the logo, down the left side, and at bottom, behind logo, which for some reason, Stan Lee had foisted upon us. Well, thank you, Roy. It's nice to know that even the people at Marvel were unhappy with it. Despite the frame, however, it is a great cover. Penciled, inked, and colored by Barry, it has Conan standing over four, I don't know, possibly five, maybe six fallen enemies. Conan has an axe in one hand and a sword in the other. The shield on his arm has obviously seen some action, and there is a horse chilling in the background. The cover has nothing to do with the story inside, not really, but Damn, it would make a great poster. And I want it framed and on my wall this instant. (laughs) Sorry. First off, I'll just say that there's something about Conan, an axe in one hand and a sword in the other that is just super cool to me. It probably comes from the movie Conan the Destroyer because I watched it a few months back, which was the first time I had seen it in years. And there's this moment during the final big fight scene where Arnold an axe in one hand and a sword in the other, jumps from a ledge atop the monster. And when he leaps, it's all slow motion. And it just struck a memory chord in me. And I said out loud at the time, that is so f***ing cool. That's the coolest thing ever. Beyond the cover, my first favorite bit is the first page. Despite the coloring on panel one, which doesn't really do anything for me, it is a great looking page. I like these marbled steps that lead into the water, and I especially like the four panels across the bottom of the page that shows Conan slowly crawling up the steps and out of the water. Then you turn the page and you see that Conan has an arrow in his back. It's it's just a great opening. With the last issue, you know, Conan killed Balthaz and a bunch of soldiers, and he slashes the prince across the face, and then he dives from the ship into the sea as more of the Turanians fire arrows at him. And it's here, of course, that we see at least one of those arrows hit their mark. Now, this is the main wharf, and there are workmen all about with hammers and tools and such, building up the city's defenses in preparation for another attack from the Turanians. And when Conan pulls himself from the water, the workmen all pause to watch for a moment or two and then attack. When I look at those two pages, starting with page one, panel one, despite there being no text sound effects, which we've talked about before, they didn't include those in the Conan books, I can hear the sounds of the seabirds, the sound of the waves gently lapping against the steps, and above all of that, the sounds of the hammers and the saws and the other tools as the men work on the defenses. Would you hold the goddamn hammering, please? Then. As Conan appears from the water, the men stop what they're doing to watch in curious wonder and, of course, a bit of surprise as this wounded outlander pulls himself up the steps. So page one, panels two through five, we're just hearing the birds and the waves and maybe a groan or two from Conan until 
turn the page and everything goes to hell. Also on page two, the last three panels, as the men are attacking Conan, he takes a hammer from one of them and starts fighting back, prompting one of the men in the final panel to say, You wield that smithy's hammer like one born to the trade, long hair. Which has to be a reference to the fact that Conan's father is a blacksmith, right? I don't know that it's come up in the series so far, but that has to be a nod to that. Also, why is the guy with long hair calling Conan long hair? I mean, (laughs) it seems like a pot calling the kettle black kind of situation, right? I guess that depends on if the guy meant it as an insult or not. And I don't know, maybe he didn't. I'm insulting you. Moving on. Every scene in this issue and previous issue in which the queen and Karam Akkad interact gives me the sense that there's something going on between the two of them, like lovers in the nighttime kind of stuff. But if that is the case, it's certainly not revealed in this issue. We're partners in a detective agency. Oh. But we're also lovers in the nighttime. Will you stop it? And then there's a moment when Kurasan comes to get Conan from his cell and he calls Conan savage. The, the court physician has told Conan that the king and queen wait for him. And that's when Kurasan arrives and he says, You heard him, savage. Move while your ears are still your own. And Conan, rather than get angry and, and lash out, he just asks Kurasan for his name. When Kurasan gives it, Conan responds with, And I am Conan. We shall meet again. Which is just the right kind of ominous, you know less a threat and more of a promise. Plus, I hadn't mentioned it in the previous episodes, and I don't know where it started, but I've been noticing these moments where someone will call Conan or refer to him as barbarian or savage or outlander or whatever. And Conan will often respond, usually in anger, that his name is Conan. I'll have to start watching out for that more and pointing it out when I remember seeing it. Moving on, I really like the bit where Conan is forced to kill the two Turanian scouts. Well, I liked how Conan wasn't happy about it, that he'd liked these guys and felt that they were worth a hell of a lot more than the Hyrcanian soldiers that he was with. But Conan is a man of his word. He had a task to do and he would see it done. Skipping ahead to the Blackstone monoliths, Blind Justin's murder and Conan's capture. While I was surprised when Kurasan killed his fellow soldiers, I was more than shocked and outraged when he killed Justin's daughter. While you don't really see anything, it's not gratuitous, it was still just brutal as hell. And I couldn't believe that they did it. I mean, I was waiting for Conan to free himself and save her. But nah, she dies, which just seems so senseless. And that was probably the point. Also, the toad thing is pretty cool looking. It's very, very creepy. That is so creepy. And in the end, I like that rather than some big drawn out fight between Conan and the monster, he quickly realizes that the armlet the queen gave him is what has put him on the creature's radar. And so he just takes it off and tosses it to Kurasan, who, of course, naturally, he catches it, which was the last thing Kurasan ever did. And it's funny because, you know, I say that I like that it wasn't a big drawn out fight. And yet I think back to the last issue where Conan did have a big drawn out fight with a dog and how I wished that it would have been a monster. So while I appreciate the story element in, in, in which Conan is just like, oh, it's this, I, my, my brain, I figured it out with my brain and doesn't take out the monster, but does take out Kurasan and then the monster leaves. I still probably would have rather between the two stories, he had a big drawn out fight with a monster and maybe what he did with the toad thing. And this issue he would have done with the dog in the previous issue. I mean, if he's going to have a big drawn out fight, with a big monster type thing, then yeah, let it be a monster and not a big dog. Why couldn't you fight a penguin? But this whole thing with with the toad creature thing does make me wonder, did the queen truly know what she was doing when she gave him the armlet? Or, I don't know, did Karam Akkad tell her to give it to him? Maybe she knew that 
Curacao was going to call the toad thing from hell, and she was worried about Conan. And so Karamakad gives her this armlet and says, we'll just give it to Conan. It'll protect him. And so she's like, yay, I'm going to protect my big, handsome barbarian. Take me, you barbarian. Or maybe Karamakad just told her uh, what she thought it was, a good luck charm, and urged her to give it to Conan. Or maybe as Conan surmises by the end of the issue, she had wanted him dead. Kurasan does say after he kills his two fellow soldiers that it was by the queen's command. Did he? Well, actually, now I can't remember if he did say that. I know he did say that their detour to the monoliths was a command from the queen. But, you know, that could have come from Karamakad and he could have told Kurasan that it was a command from the queen. I don't know. And hopefully they will they will let us know at some point before this whole holy war thing wraps up. What do you think? Let me know. Stephen or else at gmail.com. And that, folks, were my favorite bits, which means it's time to wrap it all up. I wasn't a big fan of this issue, folks. The cover is, like I said, probably my favorite of the series so far, but the content of the issue itself, eh. I mean, I'm really enjoying what is basically a multi-issue storyline with Conan finding himself in the middle of this holy war. But yeah, the quality of this story, this art, and the colors, it, it was all rather lacking. Makes me wonder if Barry coming back for six issues was really worth it if he and everyone else down the line is not able to make any of these deadlines. I mean, we got two Barry issues left, so I guess we'll see. How about you? Did you like this one? Did you hate it? Or are you just indifferent? For me, I'm just indifferent. But yeah, let me know. Stephen or else at gmail.com. Next week, we should be talking about Conan the Barbarian issue number six from Titan Comics and Heroic Signatures. And then the week after that... Uh... Yeah, sorry about this, but once again, that is not true. Conan the Barbarian number six from Titan Comics and Heroic Signatures, as I said earlier, has been pushed back a week, which means we won't get to it until the week after next. So yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Conan the Barbarian number 22 from Marvel Comics, which was published in October of 1972. And It's a reprint of issue number one from July of 1970. Again, I am very, very sorry. We're going to keep on trucking down the Marvel Highway with Conan the Barbarian number 22, which I think I mentioned before is a reprint of issue number one. And... We've already talked about issue one, right? Of course, we know that. But I thought it might be fun to revisit it after, what, it's been six months, almost seven by the time that episode will come out. So, yeah, it should be fun. Until then, folks, keep your swords close by. Never stop treading them jeweled thrones. And most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. As the prince plots, Conan, Curasan, and the two other soldiers have managed to skirt the Turanian war party without being discovered, only to I just want to fly, but that song, it makes me angry. Yes, that song, it makes me angry. He found no joy in the act because he had known both of the Turanians. Next to the Blackstone Blackstone monoliths stretching out before me, making me feel inferior. Making me feel like I'm not a person.
and creeping me out. Yeah, yeah. Drawing closer, the barbarian can see runes etched across the black. Blind Justin then tells his, tears it on the mountain to go buy a Coke and hammer on it into the evening. Conan struggles against his bonds as he and Curasan trade harsh words when the Hyrcanian unexpectedly murders. <clears throat> Conan struggles against his bonds, trading harsh words with Curasan when the Hyrcanian unexpectedly murders. I can't tell in my head. I can't tell if I'm saying unexpectedly correctly. It sounded right that time. Unexpectedly. That's when I saw ye coming at me unexpectedly. Conan struggles against his bonds as he and Curasan trade shapes, possibly some apples, maybe a bit of that green leaf that makes Conan's head feel so good. Conan struggles against his bonds as he and Curasan trade harsh words when the heart. Oh, man, I'm not having a good. I tell you what, tell you what, folks, take a drink, take a drink, folks. Oh, that's a good drink. That's a nice coffee. I like to do that. I need these little moments when I'm having an unexpected struggling time with a certain sentence or a certain moment within the episode. I just need a moment to kind of sit back and get my mind right. And I've done that. I did it now. I did it for everyone. How now? Let's try this thing one more time. Still got a lot of episode to go. So quit fucking around. Conan struggles against his bonds as he and Curasan trade harsh words when the Hyrcanian unexpectedly... Oh, Jesus Christ. Trying to decide what to do next, flee or stand his ground, Conan catches a glimpse of something... <laughs> Finish the task giving. Task giving. Hey, happy task giving, folks. Yeah, that was dumb. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk! Would you please hold the goddamn hammering now? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 